and rolling wild. Hey there, this is David H. Lawrence, the 17th, and you're listening to Rolling Wild with Alejandro Reynoso. Hey guys, welcome back to Rolling Wild, and welcome to part two of my interview with David H. Lawrence, the 17th. For those of you that took a quick break, some context to ease you back in, David and I were just talking about his video a day resolution on VO2GoGo, which I do highly recommend. Now, in this episode, we're going to continue our discussion on mindset, but we'll also be talking about David's experience with mentors and learning by doing. So without further ado, let's get to it. You talk a lot about doing, learning by doing, just getting out there and doing it and figuring it out, right? Um, Did you have any mentors in your life or through your career that really helped propel that for you or any teachers in your own life? You teach a lot of people right now and you mentor lots of um, up and coming artists. Was there anyone in your life that filled that role? Oh, yeah. I mean, the guy that really helped me get into radio, uh, I will always be grateful for because we worked together later on in my career a uh, guy by the name of uh, Dr. Robert Pondillo, who's now uh, retired. He was the real Bob James on the Big 1220 WGAR in Cleveland. And I used to fall asleep to him every night. I used to call into his show and ask for a dedication to my then girlfriend. <laughs> you know, um, And he's the one that was kind to me, as opposed to throwing my letter away um, and sending me an autographed picture. He actually responded to my questions and he helped me a great deal. Uh, we ended up working together for a company that did morning show prep, uh, all the morning shows that are wacky, nutty, zoo-like morning shows. Mm-hmm. They all rely on comedy services for a lot of their bits, and we had one that was the most popular and the most expensive, and I ended up working with him on that later on, and he was just a huge mentor and continues to be today. And um, I mean, I think that I can learn from just about anybody. Certainly there are people that have a lot of experience that I want to hear what they have to say. I want to hear if they're able to share it in a way that, um, that makes sense to me that lets me say, Oh, okay, here's how I can apply that. But I also find that almost everybody I come in contact with has at least one golden nugget in their pocket or has dropped it on the floor, or, you know, somebody is going to share something that is uh, that quarter twist of the screw in the factory that makes the machine run better. And I've learned over time that you never know where that's going to be coming from. You know, we we met face-to-face at an event at the Union Hall that, for the yeah. most part, was not all that useful to me. But there were things there you know, here and there that were game changers. And it was like, oh, that's exactly what I was looking for there. Or that's interesting. Yeah, I don't want to do that that way. So you never know what the end benefit is going to be from engaging in a conversation with somebody, whether they're a mentor or a student or a client or a peer or a production partner like a director or a casting person. Um, you know, around us are unlimited uh, availabilities for for learning and for growing. I completely so. agree with you. I've mentioned this on the show before, but my policy in life um, and what I what I try to keep um, always at the forefront is to always remain grateful and humble 
because that'll get you everywhere because it's that that mentality of there's always something there and if you are humble and you are open to learning more even if you think you've already learned something maybe you'll learn something new about it yeah and if you can maintain that once you begin to get uh, a bit of success right uh, not falsely not like false modesty but just like being friendly and nice and helpful and and cooperative and not a diva uh, you know, when I worked on Heroes, I watched this woman change before our very eyes within four hours. Um, she uh, auditioned for a guest star role on one of the episodes. She got it and then proceeded to turn into a monster. Uh, at one point, she yelled at a production assistant. I said, room temperature, not cold, room temperature. And, you know, she was kindly asked to leave. You know, nobody needs that. And most of the people that you work with in this business are really nice. And they're not, yeah. they didn't get where they are by being jerks. Some people did and continue to be. And you better be really good for a production team to put up with that crap. Mm -hmm. But when you start to have success and you're really nice and it's genuine, you're not being fake about it but you really are being nice and helpful and everybody's pulling the rope in the same direction. And let's, you know, let's, let's all save the orphanage. Let's put on a play, you know, um, that, that kind of thing is, is really, um, productive. It's really, it's like gold. It's like, it's like, you know, the currency that you want as you're working is you want to know that you can rely on the people that you're working with not to be that way. So, Having the rule set change doesn't mean you have to change as a person as to how you deal with other people. Yeah, completely agree. I think um, change is going to be a reality of it. The rule set will constantly change, but your morals within that and your personality shouldn't. That should be something that that uh, that stays consistent. Um, yep. It's gotten very serious and very awesome. I do want to bring it back to a couple fun questions for you. You've worked on a ton of different projects. I'd like to know what your favorite, absolute favorite project, or maybe just one of your favorites, because I know it's like choosing your favorite child. What has one of your favorite projects to work on been? I mean, without a doubt, uh, Heroes was a career changer for me. It was, it was, it was actually the very first paid booking I ever got. I mean, well, what if you an want introduction. Yeah. If you want to be technical about it, I was on earlier that year, I was on a show called Frank TV, which was a sketch show on, uh, I want to say TBS. Okay. Um, and I was mostly cut out of the sketch that I was in. So I really don't count that. <laughs> I think somebody, somebody put it up on IMDb and it's just, you know, okay, it's there. But Heroes was supposed to be a one and done. It was supposed to be in that, in that season, the heroes villains season, they had settled comfortably into the, the idea that they would discover a new villain every episode. Mm -hmm. And somehow that villain would be dispatched with either through their own stupidity, <laughs> uh, or through, uh, you know, the, the heroes vanquishing them. And, it was a very interesting shoot for me because so many things happened that I only had read about and studied about and, and talked with a mentor about Patrick Tucker is one of those people who is uh, another mentor in my life. Uh, he wrote the book secrets of screen acting. Mm -hmm. Incredible. In 
incredible. Uh, for people that work on camera, it teaches you the technical side of acting along with the performance side of acting. And it teaches you why certain things work on screen that don't work in real life and why certain things don't work on screen and what you need to avoid. And, you know, I had the lovely opportunity to have quote unquote studied with him. Uh, I asked him to do a podcast with me where basically I would thumb through his book, find something interesting and ask him a question and then let him talk for five minutes. And it was like a little private masterclass. It was actually a podcast just like this. But what it did was it prepared me for a whole bunch of things that people that are working for the very first time on a very, very expensive and professional set are sometimes at sea about. And I remember the the director um, who, uh, his name is Dan Adias. He's a very famous director, directed a lot of uh, HBO stuff and and big uh, network stuff. He was an executive producer on Big Love. Um, he took me aside the second day of of uh, of shooting, and he said, "Hey, um, why are you lying to people?" <laughs> and I'm like, "What are you talking about?" She, well, Hayden Hayden Panettiere was who I was doing most mm-hmm. of my work with. Uh, Hayden says, "This you told her this is your first booking. Come on, man. This you." you we know that's not true. You're you're doing things. I see you stepping off your mark. I see you asking the right questions of the right members of the crew in the right way. Uh, you don't. You're not bothering me with. Did I give you what you want? You know. I when people are first on set, I usually have to have PAs wrangle them away from me. And you're doing things that it takes people years to learn how to do. And I said, Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I take out of my knapsack this dog-eared copy of Secrets of Screen Acting. And he looks at me and he goes, from a book. You learned this stuff from a book. And I said, well, I also learned it from the podcast that I'm doing with the author of the book. The podcast. You learned this stuff from a podcast. You know, he, he and then he started looking through it and he was like, oh, my God, he's telling people everything. <laughs> oh, my. What? That, yeah. um, and this was the day after they, the, the writers and the, the pr- executive producer of the episode who now heads up television for Marvel. Mm. Uh, his name's Jeff Loeb. Uh, he and the writers kind of took off after the first six hours we were shooting. And they came back about mm, five hours later. Apparently what they had done is they'd gone to the writer's room and said, um, we're getting gold on this episode. We need to make some changes in the story arc. Because they came back to me, you know, we were turning around, which is an industry phrase uh, for, you know, shooting from the other direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there was a break and Jeff comes over to me and goes, hey, you, come here. We need to talk. Now, I will tell you that those are not the words that you want to hear said in that no. way when you're sitting on the first day of the first episode of the first job you've ever gotten, mm-hmm. right? You just don't want to hear those things. So we go off. We were in this, we were on, we were on location. We were in this um, uh, old, you know, abandoned Knights of Columbus Hall. And we went off to one of the little side rooms. And he goes, hey, here, we have new sides for you for Wednesday. And Wednesday was the day that, just like all the other villains that season, I was going to get shot and killed. And I was going to be killed. In this particular case, I'm going to be shot in the back of the head. And, you know, uh, I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm reading. Everything's exactly the same right up until the point when I get shot. And the two writers are standing there. And Jeff is standing there. And instead of getting shot, I get hit over the head with a chair leg and sent back to jail. And I'm like, I'm like, 
wow, you didn't think that the killing was powerful enough? I mean, I, I rehearsed my death scene all weekend. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, so about that. Um, we have you written into the next eight episodes. We've already talked to your agent. Um, you're recurring. You're killing it. And I didn't, I was like, like, you know, that moment, like, I think only the birth of my daughters <laughs> eclipses that. It's that moment when you go, oh, I can do mm. this. And I can do this so well that I can turn the rudder of a ship as big and as burgeoning as the number one most expensive television show ever produced up to that date and the highest rated show on the network at that time, mm. all of a sudden they are bowing to my incredible will. And, you know, you feel that for about a moment and then you go back to the, the work at hand, but it was amazing. And I think that that whole situation was so crazy it has to rank as number one in terms of, because it wasn't hard work at all. It really wasn't. It was so well-written mm -hmm. and it was such a great character. He was like a cuddly maniac. <laughs> you know, he was just, it was such a wonderful thing to happen and to happen first. Yeah. You know, it kind of set the stage for a lot that followed and, you know, it, you know, got me an incredible body of work to follow. So that truly was fantastic. I had to work with, you know, Zach Quinto and Hayden Panettiere and all of these really great artists that we see in big things these days. Uh, you know, I knew them when, <laughs> when they were just, you know, series regulars on, on NBC and the BBC's heroes. So it was, it was amazing. So I, that's what I would answer. I mean, that's a pretty fantastic answer. Thanks. So I will accept it. That being said, I was going to ask you what your dream role would be. It's kind of hard to follow that one up, but what would your dream role, um, let's say the voiceover role, what would a dream VO role look like for you right now? I mean, my whole goal my entire career has always been I want to be number one on the call sheet. Mm. I believe that I can carry a show. Uh, I have in the past. Um, I I'm, I'm good with you know, being a supporting character, but I really, my goal is to be the person that everybody relies on uh, and to show them that they can put their trust in me and they can put the audience's faith in me. Um, so I really don't have a particular character that I want to play. Um, you know, anything that Paul Giamatti doesn't want to play, I'll take care of. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I, in fact, I, I did ADR work on Too Big to Fail, which was an HBO show about the 2008 uh, crisis. And a lot of people uh, have said that I resemble Paul Giamatti. In fact, one, one day I was in Vegas at CES and a group of Japanese businessmen uh, asked the waiter if they could come over to my table. I was having a sandwich. I wasn't like sitting in a table holding court with the rest of the, the performers. I was like having a sandwich. And they came over and they lined up and they bowed and they said, uh, Mr. Giamatti, we really love your music. Oh. Uh, we mean, oh, no, no. We mean a film. We really love your film. And I said, oh, because uh, the waiter had come over and said, yeah, excuse me, sir, are you an actor? Because those gentlemen over there would like to come over and say hello. And I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was one of those moments where I was hoist by my own petard. But anyway, when they said that, I said, oh, uh, yeah, I'm not 
Paul Giamatti. Uh, I look like him, but I'm not Paul Giamatti. And the guy on the end, who apparently was the American representative from the company, stepped forward and looked at all the other ones. And he goes, I told you it was that guy from Heroes. I told you. <laughs> you know, in like an almost Southern accent. It was crazy. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't have, I don't have an actual character that I would love to play. I, I yearn for the opportunity. I yearn mm -hmm. for the, 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 um, the work. And I have been asked to do things that, you know, most people would find really distasteful. There are people that don't want to be considered, uh, a villain. Mm -hmm. I remember I, once you do a show like that, I'm sure you've experienced this because you work on a, uh, a show that's, that's got a following that's, that's, you know, crazy. Um, have you ever done, have you done any uh, cons? Have you done conventions? I haven't done any cons. No. Okay. So once you do a show like heroes, like you could spend the rest of your life every weekend being at whatever comic con you want to go to signing autographs, meeting the fans, et cetera. And I was at one called dragon con in Atlanta. Mm. And, <clears throat> um, a guy comes up to me and he says, yeah, I'd like to buy a, an autograph picture, uh, make it out to Joy. And I'm like, well, who's Joy? Where's Joy? Oh, Joy's my wife. Yeah, she's over there behind the the that cement uh, column over there. She's afraid of me. <laughs> I'm like, she's afraid of me? Oh, yeah. You creep her out, but she loves you, but she can't talk to you. She wants you, you know. And I look <laughs> over at the column and she's kind of like peering around the column and it's like I'm not that I'm a, I'm a nice guy. I'm not I'm not that villain in the show. I'm not the puppet master. Yeah, exactly. Um, but she like she saw that I was looking at her, and she got that look of fright on her face, and she pulled back behind the. So you know, some people can't separate that. I don't mm -hmm. really care. I look at that as kind of like a win. You know, yeah. if I've creeped you out, well, okay, you did your job. Did my job exactly. Thank you very much. Who's next? So, right. yeah, I don't, I don't, I can't, I wish I had a, I mean, I just, there, okay. There's one thing that I would really love to do. Um, I have had a dream for a long time of creating a one man show around Jackie Gleason. He's the reason that I became an actor. When I was a little kid, he was in a show in a, in a film called Gijo. It's spelled G I G O T. And he plays a deaf mute. So talk about the easiest memorization of anything. He didn't have to memorize <laughs> any lines, but you know, he plays a deaf mute who plays an apartment janitor in France who is falsely accused of sexually abusing one of the resident's daughters. And, you know, his face was able to transmit the story without any words without even grunting, without even making little noises. And I was laying on my living room floor in Cleveland, Ohio, watching this film, wondering why tears were streaming down my face. And I was laughing hysterically. And it was the guy that I used to watch on Sunday night uh, on, uh, on the Jackie Gleason show from the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami, Florida. And the mm. June Taylor dancers and, and Ralph Cramden, you know, uh, uh, the guy that played Ralph Cramden being on the show and and all of these characters that he created. And I'm like, wow, th wh where do you learn how to do that? How do you make people feel that? And it stuck with me my whole life. And it turns out I, I kind of resemble him as well. And I've learned a lot of the vocal mannerisms that he has. And I would love to do a four wall show in Vegas 
um, that brings back to life just how much he controlled the mind share of the late 50s and early 60s. He was the superstar of that era. So that's been something that I've I've th- thought about a lot and wanted to do. I've never actually told anybody that uh, that was a goal of mine, but it's something that I know I would do well and uh, I would love to give a shot at. I just don't think that today's entertainment directors at hotels who are all much younger than I am would even consider that as being something that would would strike a chord because they're they're trying to get younger people in Vegas all the time as opposed to the old farts that are there. So <clears throat> I don't know that anybody would be interested, but that's, you know, to answer your question, that's something that I would love to do. And in terms of a, a voice character, again, I whatever, you know, put me in front of a microphone and I'll do what you want me to do. I did want to make a point of um, when you were first answering this question, you said, you know, your goal was always to be at the top of the call sheet and you wanted people to rely on you. I wanted to make a point of that because, you know, you're talking before about being of service. And um, when you, you get an answer like that, you know, I want I want to be at the top of the call sheet. I want to carry the show. It doesn't come from a place, and I'm, I'm pretty sure people got that, but I do want to reiterate that. It doesn't come from a place of arrogance or I deserve to be at the top of the call sheet. Even if you do deserve to be at the top of the call sheet, it was the I can carry it and I want people to rely on me because I know I can do it well. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to have a healthy ego about what you do in this business. You can't be uh, constantly denigrating yourself and being falsely self-effacing. You know, nobody wants that. They want somebody who they can count on. They want somebody that they know can do the work. And I, I know that. I have ample evidence in my career that I can do the work. Yes. Um, and so after a while, it's like, I got other things to worry about. I think having a healthy ego is a requirement in this business. I mean, this is a business that is so filled with rejection. Mm-hmm. I mean, debilitating rejection, the kind of rejection that people who are the citizens, the, you know, the, 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 what do, what do I call the civilians? You know, my friend Michael calls them the muggles, um, the non-magicians, the non-performers, the non-actors, the people that look at our business and go, wait, you, how many no's do you get for every yes? Two or 300? What? You know, even when you're successful, how many times have we, you know, heard the story of how Harrison Ford was supposed to be a certain character and turned it down and it became really huge and, you know, uh, or, you know, auditioned for it and didn't get it. We don't, we never hear those stories, right? But mm-hmm. you have all these uh, people who, uh, they get rejected a lot. Everybody in our business gets rejected a lot. So, you know, when you when you know that that's what you're signing up for, and you have to be at peace with that, that, you know, it just, it's okay. They, they wanted something else. That's fine. You know, if you're just that, that, you know, sort of traveling salesman that brings your little suitcase of, of acting skills with you and you open it up and it's got legs on it and you set it up and you take your little stuff out and you do your work and, and, you know, oh, did you need something? Okay. Let me, let me see what I can help you uh, with. You know, that's, that's really the approach to take. And it's not, you're absolutely right. I'm not bragging. I hope I don't come off as I was bragging. It was one of those things where it's like, this is what I want. And if you can't articulate what you want, that's like a big battle in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I think it's really important for anyone looking to get into this industry, or even when you're starting out, it's so important to be aware that 
it is a business where more often than not, you will get that no. But it doesn't at all reflect on your artistry or you as a person. Um, it's definitely not, you know, if you're getting evidence on certain things and you're not listening, um, you know, the definition of insanity is just doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Mm -hmm. So to a point, you kind of suspend that for a bit as an actor. But, you know, I think the longer I go in this and the more you audition, you really start to focus more on, I'm going to take this one audition at a time. I'm going to focus on this character, this story and enjoy it because for that brief moment, I'm doing what I love doing. I'm telling a story. I'm being a character. Sure. And if I'm too busy focusing on, I need to get this job now. I'm desperate to get this job. What does the casting director want? Yep. Right. The character is dead. So I think the more you go, the more you build up that callus. And it's less about, did I get it? Did I not get it? And more about on to the next audition. And if that one comes back, great. Let's do the job. But the work is 98% audition and finding work. And then when you get in there, being ready. Yeah. I mean, your your rules are going to change as well when you book something. Because the first time you book something, it's like, oh, wait a minute. You said yes? <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. Um, but <laughs> also, um, you touched on something that is kind of a cornerstone in what I teach. And that is my definition of success is doing more of what works and less of what doesn't. If you can concentrate on that, as opposed to hammering away at stuff that you're pretty sure should be working, but somehow you're not executing it well, mm -hmm. um, really paying attention to the things that work for you and the things that don't work for you. And the tough part is sometimes figuring out what's working and what isn't working mm -hmm. and what the alternatives might be and how do I reproduce that success that I just experienced uh, I find that, you know, my job as a consultant, there are some people that call me a coach. I call myself a coach on my business cards, but I'm not the kind of coach that sits there and says, so what do you think the answer is? You know, because a lot of coaches, I mean, they tell you, I, I took courses on coaching and I decided I wasn't a coach. You know, they ask question after question after question, trying to help their client get the answer on their own. I'm a consultant. If you ask me, how do you use this particular microphone for this particular job? I'm not going to ask you questions about, well, how do you feel you should use the microphone? You know, I'm going to show you, you know, I, I right. want you to have the answer right now. You know, I certainly want to, uh, uh, you know, help you fish, but I want to show you why the rod works the way it does and how the fish are going to bite, you know, that kind of, I want, I want there to be answers for you if you're coming to me for answers. But the idea that success comes from kind of honing and shaving and adjusting and doing more of what works and less of what doesn't, that, that's become one of those uh, memes in my, in my classes where I talk about what's important and what you think might be important and how maybe it's not, or maybe it's a lot more important than you thought it was. It depends on what the, the issue is. But, you know, that to me is the way to optimize your approach to your business um, is to really examine, to reflect on what you've done and how you've done it, what worked, what didn't. It goes back to um, my, my first acting teacher, which was Howard Fine. You know, when you get done with a scene, he'd jump up on stage and he'd sit down with his pad and he'd go, all right, so what worked, what didn't, and why? And <clears throat> that always struck me as a question that we often don't ask ourselves, a series of questions that we don't ask ourselves. You know, after you do an audition, 
and you don't hear anything for a long time. You figure right. you didn't get the job. Instead of sitting there and going, oh, I suck. <laughs> oh, my God. I was so awful. I'm just, I'm never going to get work. You know, what worked, what didn't, and why? You know, what did you do with that audition or with that work that was good? What was a challenge? And why do you put those in those categories? Why do you put those answers in those categories? And if you can ask those questions, you create sort of a personal feedback loop for yourself. Right. And you kind of can't help but, you know, get better and better and better. So that's my approach to success. That That's really interesting because, like you said, there isn't a ton of external feedback necessarily when you're auditioning. Because if you don't get something, you just... It goes off into the ether and you don't necessarily ever hear anything back. Yeah. And it's not, and it's not worth asking, you know, a lot of actors will sit there and they'll call their agent or they'll try to get in touch with the casting associate or the casting assistant. Did she not like what I did? Could you find out what, what, you know, what she thought about, you know, and all they're going to say, because their job is not to be your acting teacher. Their job is not to take care of you. As my friend, Michael Kostroff says, your job is to take care of them and to have the inner strength of knowing you're done with that. You didn't get it. Move on to the next thing. There's going to be more opportunities around the corner. But we are so sometimes so self-conscious about trying to get feedback from every corner, especially the gatekeepers. You know, mm -hmm. maybe the casting director will tell me one thing that will, will change things for me. It'll turn that screw a quarter turn. It's one of the reasons that I'm really sad that casting workshops were uh, you know, kind of cast the way they were. Those were some of the most incredible learning experiences for me ever. I went to hundreds of casting workshops and I didn't go there trying to convince the casting director they should bring me in. I went there to learn. I wanted to see how the, the sausage was made. You know, how did they make the decisions that they were making? What were they thinking that mm -hmm. we just kind of were surmising? You know, we right. we think we know how they're thinking but the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, if you've got kind of a sullen RBF, uh, I hope people know what that means. I don't know if this is not safe for work, but, you know, if somebody's sitting there and they look like they're bored or they look like they're sleeping or they look like they're not tuned in, they actually could be extraordinarily tuned in and not aware of what their face looks like when they're connected completely. So you can't assume that, right? So anyway, there's all these different things that that come into play. And yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. This has been super fantastic. The last thing I want to ask you before you go, and you've touched on a bunch of stuff that I think, especially when you're starting out, it is gold to be able to automatically get this feedback and know. But what would you have said to young David Lawrence when you were starting out? What would you have said? What advice would you have given to yourself at the very beginning? So it kind of feels like you're saying if you could change something about how you approach this stuff, what would you change? You could look at it that way. Or if it was just something that you know now, that even if it changed anything, what would have really served you? Yeah, I, I've often said um, if I had it to do all over again, I would advise myself at age 17 uh, instead of uh, going to Ohio State, because I ended up quitting. I quit. Ohio State, my sophomore year, I've never completed college. And oddly enough, nobody's ever asked me where my degree was. You know, one time, one time when I went to work for the government, I went to work for ARPA, 
the, the people that created uh, Stealth Bomber, and they, they were part of the Department of Defense. And I went there to support the 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 director uh, to sit outside his office, and you know, if he wanted to learn how to bold in Microsoft Word, mm-hmm. I dutifully went into the <laughs> office and showed him. Um, and you know, I got through the interview and they were like, um, we're looking at your resume and we don't see your under education where you graduated, what degree you had, where, you know, and I said, yeah, it's cause I quit. And they're like, what? Like we, I'd gotten through like maybe six interviews, uh, started my security clearance interview and nobody had ever asked. And, you know, I, and it was like, oh my gosh, we, we have to, the rules are not, the rules are not set up for this sort of thing. Um, but nobody's ever asked. I quit when I was, uh, you know, in the middle of a, a horrible win, uh, winter storm. Uh, I just, I was doing what I always wanted to do already. And I was making about you know, 12 times what I thought I was going to make when I got out of school three years later. And I was loving it. And so I'm like, what am I, why am I, you know, killing myself trying to get to a psych 202 class hmm. at 1120 in the morning after I get off the air? You know, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. So I have often said what I would give in, in terms of advice was from there, move to Los Angeles hmm. because my life changed 180 degrees uh, when I moved here. I had had a great deal of success, but the level of success that I've experienced since moving to LA was, it has been incredible. And I feel like there's a part of me that thinks I missed the heyday of network television. We're going through so many changes now, even though more series are being produced than ever. I think this year is like 550 mm-hmm. scripted series with all the different new networks. And streaming and, sites. Yeah, streaming services, OTT boxes and stuff like that. Um, I missed like, you know, the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s and the late 70s. And, you know, uh, like reruns aren't a thing anymore. Like mm-hmm. they talk about residuals down at the at the union hall, right. but I think actors that remember when you know there was a twenty four series uh, episode season, and then they repeated those twenty four episodes um, in the spring and summer. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. Mm-hmm. Brand new series take the place of series that are on the air, and the number of episodes that they're asking for have dropped precipitously in some cases, like eight episodes. They tell it, it's like an old, an old uh, movie of the week, mini series, right? Like roots. Um, that's the way a lot of almost all series are these days. Nobody's ordering that many episodes anymore. Mm-hmm. And they're also not rerunning them. They're running them in different categories, but that network residual just isn't there anymore because they just don't do that. And I was fortunate enough to be on How I Met Your Mother. And that was kind of the last series that went into syndication and were really kicking off cash to the people that were uh, on it. I was on three or four episodes just with my voice. They brought me in to do uh, radio uh, sports play-by-play announcers. I always tell people, you know, one day I made $450 per second doing what I was doing Hmm. because my line in the show was a, a sportscaster who was calling the Minnesota Vikings game. And my line was touchdown Vikings. That was it. That was it. And I got paid exactly the same as, as everybody else who was a day player. I got the same residuals. I got literally, I, you know, it was, it was, do you know what audition for work is when you, when you go in and you audition and whoever gets it works right then and there and they tell everybody else to go home. Mm. 
it's one of the most demoralizing things yeah. ever. Like we're all sitting in the in the in the waiting room. We're going in one at a time. We're all having a wonderful time. And then you know the casting associate comes out and says, "Okay, uh, David, you got it. You hang out. The rest of you, thank you so much." All that camaraderie just evaporates mm. as they stare at you leaving the room. You know, all these big talents, you know, mostly joking, but still, it's disappointing. You drive, you spend your morning, and you don't get it. Mm -hmm. And then this guy gets it, <laughs> right? So anyway, that happened a number of times. But the idea that you get residuals, it was really, really a big deal in the, the heyday of network television, which was the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the early 2000s. Um, and just as a little side story, we owe all that to Fess Parker. Um, he told NBC, I'm not going to be Daniel Boone anymore unless you give me some of the money that you're making with the reruns every summer, because you're using my image and my work and you're making all kinds of money and I'm not. And so if you want me to continue to be the most popular kid show on television, you're going to start sharing residuals. And that started the whole thing with, uh, SAG and after back in the day and, um, we have him to thank for it, not just that winery up in Santa Barbara. Hmm. Um, so I think I would have told myself that. But having said all that, which was a lot, um, I always remember that part of the reason that I'm good at what I do is my life experience. Part of what I draw to bear uh, is my life experience. Um, just as an example, I was the track announcer in Cars 3. And all I was doing was channeling the play-by-play -play announcers that I listened to on the radio as a teen and a young adult, uh, one in particular in Cleveland, Joe Tate, who was amazing. And I've just had that sportscaster thing going for a long time. And it just worked. And same thing with Touchdown Vikings and same thing with uh, the promo announcer, the, the not actual promos, but in movies uh, like Unstoppable, uh, they brought me in to do lines like live, local, late breaking, eyewitness news. And I'm convinced that the reason I got that job was that I pronounced the word news with a Y in it. Hmm. So it was news, not news. Um, you know, I, I've just had that character inside me forever. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if I would have some of those characters if I didn't have the life experience that I actually had, I'm willing to, <laughs> I'm willing to take the risk. I would have, I would have, that's the one thing that I would have changed. I wouldn't have waited so long to really follow the muse and to come out and see if I could do, uh, on camera stuff. Cause I was much better looking when I was a kid. I w oh my God. I was, I was hot. I was <laughs> on this. Anyway, that's what I, that's the one thing that I would tell myself, I think. Thank you so, so much for sharing your experience and, and your time, David, it's been really fantastic. And I really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing you with our Rolling Wild listeners. This is this is great. Um, and you're killing it. This is great. This is just awesome. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. I hope that was just as wonderful and informational for you as it was for me. I had a ton of fun speaking with David H. Lawrence the 17th. Um, it was definitely a great little masterclass on mindset and being successful playing the mental game in this industry. So I hope you will take from this whatever is useful to you. And I'm excited to keep bringing you awesome interviews with great professionals like David on the show. 
I've been getting tons of great feedback from you guys, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. So I'm going to work hard to keep bringing you awesome content that is helpful and interesting to you. And I think... I think we'll call that... Episode 105. It's a Mindset Thing. With David H. Lawrence, the 17th, part 2.